We are in First John chapter 3 this morning, maybe in chapter 2 some, maybe in chapter 4 as well. We'll see. See what happens. I'm just going to read the whole letter. Just kidding. Although I'd encourage you to. It's wonderful. It is wonderful. Let's just, let's jump right in to verse 23 in chapter 3. Text says, and this is his commandment. That we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us, all who obey his commandments abide in him and he abides in them. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. May God add God's blessing to the reading of God's word. A while back, I was reading an article. uh, I don't remember when. Read a lot of articles, journal entries, um, book excerpts, and this was by a particular theologian whom I admire greatly, Robert Jensen. And he was pointing out that in the ancient church, which is the very folks that John would be addressing here in this letter, the folks in the ancient church, they developed an instructional institution. Um, yeah, it was that. That's a good way to put it, an instructional institution. It was kind of a, well, the name for it was a catechumenate, I believe is how you describe that. There are derivatives of that word that you may recognize from certain denominations, uh, not, not so much ours, but you may have heard of catechesis or this time in our lives when we, when we come to uh, grow very intentionally in the maturity in our faith. Catechumenate. The purpose was to give people who wanted to be a Christian, people who wanted to to follow and be formed by Jesus, um, education, formation in Christianity. Now, it's interesting. I want you to go with me here. I want to, we're going to look at a quote by Jensen to help explain what this was for. Jensen said this was necessary because life in the church was too different from life out of the church for people to tolerate the transfer without some preparation. The church has now returned, Jensen believes now today, to the situation in which the catechumenate was born. Those to be integrated in the life of the church's life, if she is faithful, it must be a shock and puzzlement to them. So what Jensen is effectively saying here is that popular culture around us, really in most of the Western world, has become utterly secular. I actually don't don't bemoan that. For I I believe this is precisely when the church can be its countercultural self in the world. And if you want to look into that further. I'd love to help you do that. If you haven't before, just, just research the time around the fourth century when Constantine became emperor in Rome and converted to Christianity and what effect that had on the church. But John's audience is, is, is getting this letter well before that. And so something like a catechumenate was really important because life in the church was so different from life outside of the church. As much as anything, John is trying in this letter to communicate what it must look like, what it needs to look like to be a Christian. Now, John's writing about two groups of people. He's writing about those who believe and have received eternal life, those following and being formed by Jesus, and then those folks who have yet to believe 
and receive eternal life. And secondly, John in this letter, he's writing to that first group of people specifically. I know I've said that already, but I want to emphasize it. Giving those of us who do identify as Christians a blueprint. This letter is, is in large part that, a blueprint for what we should be like, what we should look like. Things that are vital for this community to be who God has called us to be, to be the church. To be a Christian, according to John, I believe, four things. And we're going to go through these four things. We must know that we know God. We must know that we are in Jesus and that Jesus is in us. We must know that we're children of God. Yeah, all of us are children of God. And we must love one another. I think you can find that in this letter. I think you can find that in the two verses we just read. Let's unpack this a little bit. First, we must know that we know Jesus. We must know that we know Jesus. First John 2, 3. First John 2, 3. Now by this we may be sure that we know him, John says, if we obey, if we obey his commandments. Do we know that Jesus is God's son? That was one of the heresies of the time that John was combating with this letter. He was trying to encourage folks to, to know in their bones that Jesus is who Jesus said he was, that he's God's son. Look back at 3.23. Let's look at it again. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. My experience is, is that it works both ways. Believing encourages obedience and obedience builds our belief. It builds our trust. I tend to prefer the word trust to belief, just personal preference. They're both fine. But think about all the ways trust is being challenged in our society today amongst our sharply divided political lines for one is one example, one of the more pertinent ones right now. I got to tell you, I am really grieved that so many of us, Christians included, get fixated on a certain perspective or ideology. Now, this invites the conversation of, of what are the core tenets of our faith? What are the non-negotiables? And then from there, what are the less non-negotiable and then the even less? And that's a conversation that is worth having and very difficult to parse out from the pulpit in a sermon. But when we get fixated so much on a particular way of thinking and, and, and we are more interested in being right than hearing someone else's perspective, I think we are in dangerous territory. I know that I am when I get that way. And we become so rooted in it that our lives become devoid. Now hear me, devoid of any relationships with folks who might be different than us, who think differently. As an Enneagram 9, I mentioned that to you last week, I am at my best a peacemaker. And that means in my, at my core, I trust you. I love trusting you. The last thing an Enneagram 9 wants taken from them is their trust in other people. That's why this letter encourages me so much because John over and over again is inviting us to not only trust each other, but ultimately for that trust to be rooted in our trust in who God says God is. 
in, our son, in his son, Jesus Christ. John encourages us over and over again to trust, to trust, to know God, to trust that God has our best interests at heart. Do you know that today? Second, we trust that we are in Jesus. We live in him and he lives in us. First John 2, 5 and 6. But whoever obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as, just as he walked. And then again, chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 24 that we just read. All who obey his commandments abide in him. And he abides in them. And by this, we know that he abides in us. By the spirit, he has given us. There's a great story in 2 Kings. There's actually a lot of great stories in 2 Kings. But there's one in chapter 6 that I want to draw your attention to particularly. You don't have to turn there, but just trust me on this. Israel, the northern kingdom of the Hebrew people, the people of God, they are skirmishing with Syria. It's a long, extended skirmish. Don't think the Bible says skirmish. I think I put that word in there, but it's a fight. They're fighting. They're at war. The Syrian king realizes that what's going on here is Elisha, who is super, prophet Elisha is super connected with God. And Elisha is getting some inside information from God and revealing to the king of Israel all the military plans and tactics for the Syrians. So the king of Syria sends a big old army to apprehend Elisha to shut him up. Well, the next day, Elisha's friends discover there is an army surrounding them. What will they do? And Elisha famously says in chapter 6, don't be afraid. There are more with us than there are with them. Don't miss that. Because Elisha's testimony to his concerned friends can be ours today in the face of any concerns we may have. There are more with us than with them. Then Elisha prays his young friend's eyes would be opened, and sure enough, God reveals this to the young man, that Elisha and his people were actually surrounded by an even greater army. The forces with us are greater than the forces against us. So we must trust that we are in him. It is a key, if not the key, to knowing this to be true in our lives, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Now, let's just be real for a moment. This, this is pertinent right now because of the situation we all find ourselves in, in the world. It's, it's what led to what I was saying in the welcome about how you know, there is dissonance in my life about how to lead a church through this, about how to lead my family through this. I'm not despondent. I'm really not because I've been reading Second Kings and First John. But I'm not certain how all this is going to go. And I don't want you to feel like you have to be either. It's weird. It's dangerous for many. 
There are those of us among us who think it's not that big a deal and it's being blown out of proportion. There are those of us who haven't left our houses in eight months. And that's true of our community of believers within the church. And if we're not going to acknowledge that together, we have no chance of loving those who might feel differently about something that is one of the more significant things that any of us will ever go through, no matter how old you are, how young you are. 80 years to go, eight years to go, whatever it may be, this is the time that is of immense significance. Never in my life has it been more important for me to know that I am in Jesus and he is in me. First John 4, 4. Little children. By the way, that's all of us. Little children, you are from God and you have conquered them for the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Third, John just said it, little children, I believe that's all of us. Third point, we're children of God, all of us. Now, while everyone may not yet be following and being formed by Jesus, not everyone has received eternal life yet. Rest assured that everyone who is a one, a someone, is loved by the Father, is a child of God, is set apart to know that they are set apart. Everyone. We are all God's children. Jesus loves everyone as one of his father's very own children. And John taps into this theme 15 times in 1 John. 15 times. Now, our daughter Hattie turned four last month. You don't hear her right now because we have childcare open this morning. I hope it's going well. We'll we'll ask Hannah after and see how it went. She turned four last month. She is... Oh, she's so fun. She loves her dog, Annie, so much, and her three big brothers. She has captivated us and made our lives so much richer. I bet there's another Hattie being born right now. She won't be named Hattie, though, at least not today, because she won't get a name today, because she won't be with her mother today, because her mother believes she cannot take care of her. So this precious child of God will be adopted, we hope, and then get a name. Or there's a little boy whose parents are now unable to care for him and DCS has actually taken him and he will need to be placed with a foster family if there's one for him. Because there's not one for him immediately for so many. There are 350 foster children in Williamson County alone, over 400 in Davidson County, over 8,000 in our state. Eight children a day die of gun violence in our country, almost 3,000 a year. One in five children in the U.S. live in poverty. Compare that to one in eight adults. 40% of children in our country will live at least one full calendar year in poverty before they reach the age of 18. 40%. That's close to as many as won't. Children in poverty are more likely to experience hunger and food insecurity has a lifelong effect. Lower reading and math scores, more physical and mental health problems, more emotional and behavioral problems, and a greater chance at obesity. Why am I saying all this? Well, I'm saying all this because we're all God's children. Did you read it? Did you see it? Fred Craddock always said the way the church has to work is this. Those who are more able take care of those who are less able. 
Those who are more able take care of those who are less able. The older ones take care of the younger ones. Sometimes that's inverse. Many of you are feeling that right now. You may be in the sandwich years. Those who are more able take care of those who are not able. I appeal to our oldest child. Hey, buddy, your siblings are watching you. You can really help them. Or to our second born, Elliot. Lewis and Hattie have the benefit of watching you, buddy. Because we're all less able from time to time, right? In some way, some shape, some form. And we are all God's children. All of us. Even you. Last. We enjoy intimate relationship with God. Do you, do you, know, you know that? I'll get to the last point in just a second. We, we have access to God. This sets Christianity apart from every other faith system in the world as I understand it. I've studied them. I've dabbled. They're interesting. There's some good things in what other people believe. Some things that make sense. What we believe is whole. And what sets us apart is God has come to us. Namely, in the form of his son, Jesus. And we have access to intimate relationship with God right now. And because of that, our fourth point is true. We actually can love one another well. Because we have a secret weapon. It's not us. It's not our broken, finite selves that are doing it. We have the very power of the Holy Spirit to tap into, to live through us and out of us into each other's lives. And we can love one another well. So when you lay down at night and you think about Pastor Brandon saying today in his first fourth point that you need to love one another because scripture is fraught with that command is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Don't lay down thinking, oh, I've got to do it because it's, you know, I'm going to not be loved or lovely or God's not going to choose me if I don't do it with excitement because you can do it. Because you have the power to do it. Because you've been set apart to do it. Because you have everything you need to actually lean into loving each other and allowing each other to know that you love each other. Not just saying it. Doing it. And it working out. I'm fired up right now because this is how things are supposed to be. This is John's progression here. I'm imagining him writing this down fired up because he's seeing how it could become true. And we could have a lot less angst for one another. And we could have a lot fewer people roaming around lonely because they don't have a clue what we know. And if it doesn't shake you to the core that there are people within a stone's throw of you that don't know what you know, then something is wrong. Love one another is not a command that looks good in a sermon outline. Love one another is what we get to do. Because we can. Three twenty-three, And this is his commandment that we should believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us. So do we take care of one another? Do we trust one another? Those of us who are able, when we're more able, do we take care of those who are less able? I remember my parents, they would say to me, as our, me and my brothers, I was the oldest and we got older and they got to be able to go out and leave us at home. That sounds awfully nice. I would love for those days to come on and be for our family. Not there yet, but I'm digressing. They would say, Brandon, 
you're in charge. Take care of your brothers. We'll be back in a little while. And I would say in my petulant oldest son said, do I have to? And they would say, yeah, you do. There's no choice here. It's the way things were. It's what Christians are. It's what we do. We love one another because we can. I like to read Soren Kierkegaard. I don't know if that makes me weird because I don't often understand what Soren was, was saying. I don't know that he understood a lot of what he was saying. But he lived in the 1840s or early 1800s, and he was alive in the 1840s in Copenhagen, Denmark. And in his journal, during sometime during that decade, he um, wrote about an experience where he was walking the streets. And what he saw as he was walking the streets was a, uh, it was a young girl who was carrying a basket begging. She was homeless, young girl. And behind her were three musicians. And they were blind. And so she was obviously taking up money for all of them. And um, it was a remarkable scene, Kierkegaard describes it, because they were playing the most beautiful music. Mozart, if I remember correctly. Marvelous music. And around them gathered a small group of people. And it, was, it wasn't a large group, and it was mostly made up of people who spent the majority of their time on the streets. So there was not much money represented in this group that was gathered around them. But Kierkegaard saw, Kierkegaard saw that just down the street, filing out of their chariots, were people who did have a lot. And they were filing into the theater for the evening entertainment. And Kierkegaard said there are two kinds of people in this world. He said there are those who are willing but cannot. There are those who are able but will not. Now, Kierkegaard was cynical, but to me, y'all, he sounds right. Maybe he is right. But then, then, I imagine what I've been trying to convey the last few minutes. I imagine our reality as Christians. Our reality as Christians when we... When we know God, when we know that Christ is in us and we are in him, when we remember that we are all God's children dependent upon one another and that those who are more able are called out to take care of those who are less able. When my imagination goes there, I feel confident that Kierkegaard was not right. He was sort of right because there are Certainly people who are willing but can't. And there are people, unfortunately, who are able but won't. But there is a third person. There's a third person. It's you. It's you. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us to do. Let's pray.